Well, here we are. We've actually reached the end of our core team development. We've uh, been going on for 21 weeks now, trying to prepare us, trying to build this core team. Uh, not just numerically, but to build us around a common vision, a common mission, a common purpose. It was our hope that in this time we might be unified around a, a central theme, a central purpose, a central focus, and that, that might just overwhelm our hearts so that together as one body we might go out and do the very thing which God has called us to do. And so I pray that that, that has been the effect. You know, we, we've spent a lot of time in, in vision. We've spent a lot of time in mission. We've looked at core values. We've looked at a strategy that we believe is holistic that can uh, present uh, an accurate picture of what we are to do as a church that's easy to remember so that we can then go out and do it. The real question remains, are we going to do it? Have we been doing it and are we going to do it? This is not an end in of itself. You know, when we, when we take the step next week to start meeting weekly, opening up our, our gathering for new people to come in, it's not as though these things now sit on the shelf. That these are not just, you know, audio clippings for an archive somewhere. But these are meant to continue to drive everything that we do. And so um, I want to do a quick review to remind us why it is we do what we do. I mean, we're, we're doing this obviously to honor, um, to honor God. We're doing this, as Caleb prayed so well, to just see people come to know the Lord. And so, before we take that next step, we just need to go back. It's, this is the end. We need to summarize. We need to think about where we've been. And I want to start with our core values. Uh, does anyone remember what our core values are? Oops. I didn't actually put them up there. I had to do all this stuff during our basic training, <laughs> so there are probably a couple of things left out. Anybody remember core value? We had seven. Strategy. That's strategy. We'll get there. Core values? Anybody? Okay. Our core values are proclamation, worship, community, uh, truth, transformation, love, and family. Those were those the chief uh, principles. Those are the things that, that, we, that drive what we do, what we do. These are the things that we think are essential to the, the, um, the, essentially the why behind our vision and mission. Our vision statement. That's our preferred future. What we believe God is directing us to become. And uh, we tried to set this in terms of uh, an end time hope. We didn't want to set it for five years from now. We didn't want to set it, you know, just... Locally, we wanted to say, this is where we're all heading as believers. So we wanted our vision to be of the new heavens and the new earth, Revelation 20 kind of stuff. And, and so we, uh, we made it broad. Our vision statement is, because we exist to exalt Christ, we strive, we labor, we, we endeavor to see lives transformed. Again, transformation is one of our core values. To the glory of God, through the proclamation of the gospel, by the power of the Holy Spirit, to all peoples. This is what we want to be about. This is, this is our preferred future, where we think we're going. 
That's our destination. Our mission, then, is what we're doing today to get to that vision. Does anyone remember our, our mission statement? The mission of Redeemer Church is to build a gospel-centered community. A redemptive community, redemptive community. of, yeah. of gospel-centered people. Guys, if I could give you a homework assignment, it's to memorize that. Redeemer Church exists to build a redemptive community of gospel-centered people. This is why, This is what we're doing today to reach that mission, what we're doing every day. It should be, that should be the motivation for our talking to our neighbors. That should be the motivation for us speaking to our coworkers. That should be the motivation behind our gathering together. Everything that we do should be driven by that. We also identified some areas of focus, some specific ways that we felt like we needed, in order to fulfill that mission, we needed to look at some specific goals, some specific areas. Ways that we think that are necessary for us to, to live those out. And, and we, we term them in terms of, uh, we're committed to seeing redemption lived out. We said, first, we're, redemp- uh, we're committed to seeing redemption lived out in the home. It starts in the family. We want to see the, the family to be this, this uh, biblical picture of what uh, marriage and parenting is meant to look like. We, we believe that that our children's ministry starts there and is primarily there, and that the church is meant to assist the families in doing that, but not do that for them. So redemption starts in the home. Second, we're committed to seeing redemption lived out in the community of believers. That's the church. We want to make sure that those people who enter our doors are, are confronted with the gospel and come to know and truly believe the gospel. Third, we're committed to seeing redemption lived out in the city, you know, in Champaign-Urbana. I mean, we obviously came to plant here so that we can see people come to know Christ. But it doesn't end there. We're committed to seeing redemption lived out in our culture. We believe that the gospel has the power of transformation. That as it transforms individual hearts over time, it has the ability to transform entire cultures. And we're committed to that. We want to see our world changed by what we do. And finally, we're committed to seeing redemption lived out among the nations as we go on mission for God. And then we had our, our multi-piece strategy. Our, 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 we had uh, a number of P's, you know, a little alliteration, craziness there, but a, a, a way that we could think about, we could take a handle on uh, what it is we're trying to do. Now, does anybody remember the P's? Proclamation. Prayer. Personal relationships. Personal relationships. Planting. Planting. <laughs> Plan patience. Plan patience. Perseverance. Presence. 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 Yeah. Now, <clears throat> we actually want these things to be a part of every ministry venue that we do. Okay? The, this, is a, this is a holistic way of thinking about our mission. <coughs> Alright? So, an element 
of every ministry, whether it be children's ministry, whether it be the, local, the corporate gathering, whether it be our community groups, whether it be our outreach efforts, is proclamation. We want to proclaim the Word, and we want to see the Word of God uh, applied. So that's one aspect of everything that we do. And a second, personal relationships. We want to have authentic relationships of care and concern. So again, whether we're gathering together here on a Sunday morning, or we're meeting in someone's home, or it's our children's ministry, or life transformation groups, it's all about developing personal relationships. As we go out, we knock on doors to share the gospel. It's about developing personal relationships. Nothing is separate from that. Prayer. We want prayer to be a part of everything we do. I mean, that we ought to, right? Um, presence. Presence is twofold. Presence is we want to see God's presence at work within our hearts. So we want to see transformation happening, right? So whatever we want to do, we want it to... Uh, to lead towards a greater transformation of, of inwardly, but also a transformation outwardly. And this is our salt and light, being salt and light in the world. This is when we go on mission for God, whether it be to, to meet the needs of a co-worker, as we did for, for Polly's uh, workplace, or whether we go and we serve you know, at a soup kitchen, or we go and we knock on doors, or whatever we're doing to be salt and light, our idea is to apply redemption, to see that transformation happening inwardly and outwardly. Plan patience. You know, we included that because it's easy in a church plan to come, become discouraged. Well, then we're not as large as we hoped that we would be. Or we thought that we were going to go this way, but God is kind of leading us in this direction. And if we're not careful, we'll, we'll become discouraged. Or we'll think that, you know what? You know, God's not really at work. When He's at work the whole time, we're just not opening our eyes to it because we've got our, we're so set and so focused and we put God in a box going this direction. And a second aspect of that is that we're identifying evidences of God's grace in, in, that we see all around us. And so this ought to be a part of every, everything that we do. Even when we gather informally for hospitality, we ought to try to encourage the evidences of God's grace we've seen in one another's lives. Let's make that a habit as we gather together. Let's be an encouragement to one another. And then planting. Planting is, is broader than church planting, but church planting is a big part of it. Planting is multiplying and growth. Everything that we do, we want to set it up in such a way that it can multiply or that it can grow. So when we do our, our, our community groups, right, we don't just have one leader. We have a leader and apprentice. And that leader is helping that apprentice, giving them opportunities to grow so that as that community group builds, then that, that group can multiply. Same way with our, our Christianity Explained, Christianity Explorer classes. We want to have you know, one, like two people teaching or one person doing primarily teaching, the other person learning, in hopes that we can get to where they'll split and do two of them. So, and we do that with our church. We want to be a church that plants churches, right? And so we do that here as well. Um, and you, you might say, well, how does that work for our, for our children's ministry? I don't, I don't really see that. Well, that's primarily focused on growth. You know, there. The planting works in, in, in that way. Um, but the large part, the rest of what we're really going to talk about today is church planting. We have a real heart for church planting. Um, originally, this was under presence. Uh, but we felt like it was so important we needed to pull it out and give it another week. We need to be able to focus on it. 
Um, you see, we want to be a church, not only a church that plants churches, but we want to be a church that plants churches that plants churches. So even our church plants are planting churches. Because we believe this is essential to the spread of the gospel. We believe that it's biblical, it's practical, it's healthy, and that it's consistent with the mission of God. And so we gave it its own P. So my goal for today is to do three things, since we reviewed, is to provide a biblical foundation for church planting. This is not going to be a typical sermon, it's kind of a sermon presentation thing. I feel really weird about it because I just like to you know, exegete text. We're going to look at a lot of them, and so I'm going to have them up here on the screen. So you can flip in your Bible, but you can also read them up here. We'll also provide a practical rationale so we can think seriously about the severity of the situation that we're, we find ourselves in. And hopefully we can we come to a realization, man, we really do need to plant churches. And third, we want to look at what we think at this point church planting is going to look like at Redeemer. We don't have all the answers at this point. We're still fleshing it out. But God has kind of given us, a, you know, he's sketching that, that vision and we want to convey what that is. So the biblical foundation. <clears throat> Let's look at that first. Um, biblical foundation. I, I truly believe church planting is the mission of God. We see in, in uh, my battery's getting low. We see it in Matthew 28, 18 through 20, that church planting was commanded by Christ. Listen, Jesus came and said to them, "All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me." Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. A couple of weeks ago, we talked about this passage in terms of, of discipleship, that we need to be about making disciples, right? And when we talked about it, we said, really, everything that we do, every single thing that we do is about making disciples. It's the big umbrella. So, children's ministry is part of making disciples. Evangelism is part of making disciples. Missions is part of making disciples. Community groups, you know, so on and so forth. Everything we do is about making disciples. Making or maturing. It all goes together. And so church planting is part of that as well. But I want to focus on, on baptizing and teaching. I tried to bold those. I don't know if you can see that. Where were these done? Where did they baptize and where did they teach? In public places, but they did it in churches, you know? They were gospel communities doing that together. According to this passage, you know, it's not enough to have a simple understanding of the gospel, to just be a convert. A disciple is not somebody who professes to know something, sort of a lone ranger, an individual, but... They were taught to observe all that Christ commanded. I don't know about you, but when, when you came to know Christ, did you know everything there was to know and observe everything that Christ commanded at once? No. I didn't. I'm still not doing that. I, I came to know Christ when I'm ten when I was ten. I'm thirty one now, you know, twenty one years of my life, and I'm not there yet. I mean this takes a lifetime, doesn't it? If we're really gonna follow through on this it, it, it's going to take a lifetime. And, and it requires a gospel community to do that. It, it requires consistent teaching. 
lifelong teaching. We're never just there. It requires that believers continually uh, meet together for encouragement and accountability. Uh, you know, Tim Keller said it this way, only a person who is being evangelized, and I actually kind of like that phrase, being evangelized, a little better than evangelism, because we think that there's an end point. My evangelism is done once I get them wet. But he says they're being evangelized in the context of an ongoing worshiping and shepherding community. Um, that person can only be sure of finally coming home into a vital saving faith. As long as they're in that community, as long as they're continuing to be shepherd, as long as they're continuing to worship and have that one anothering, can they truly be assured that they were indeed evangelized? He said this is why a leading missiologist, C. Peter Wagner, can say, planting new churches is the most effective evangelistic methodology known under heaven. It takes that much confidence to say this is the main way to evangelize. Secondly, what are they baptized into? Baptized into the church. Into their identification with Christ. You know, they're saying, I am now a Christian, I belong to Christ, but also I am a part of his bride. I'm a part of this covenant community. You know, I, I'm identifying myself with a particular group of people. And that group is the church. So as they went about, as, as the believers went about making disciples, as they did that, they were baptizing and teaching. It required that they establish churches. It required these gospel communities. And so as the gospel spread to all nations, so did the church. Um, in John uh, 20, 21, which is John's version of the Great Commission, Jesus said to them again, Peace be with you. As the Father has sent me, even so I am sending you. Here we see that the reason that Jesus sent his disciples is because he himself was sent. And therefore, the disciples were actually continuing the mission and the ministry of Jesus, right? I mean, you see this. Jesus said, the Father sent me, I'm on a mission, now I'm sending you to continue that mission, right? And so if part of the mission of the disciples was to plant churches, can we safely assume that it was the mission of the one who sent him? I think we can safely say that. Part of the mission was Jesus, was to plant churches. <clears throat> Secondly, Church planting is a New Testament pattern. In, in Acts 1.8, we have um, the purpose statement behind Luke's writing Acts. Jesus is there. He's meeting with 120 or so. And he says, all the power, uh, you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you. And you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. And the rest of Acts is actually an account of this being fulfilled. We see how the gospel goes forth, and it, indeed it goes to Jerusalem, and then it goes to all Judea and Samaria, and then it goes to the end of the earth, with Paul ending up in Rome, which is sort of, at that time, the heart of the earth, in a sense. <clears throat> and so when they did that, as they continued to do that, the priority again was to make disciples and to plant churches. In Acts 2, 37 37-41, says, now when uh, Jesus, or, I'm sorry, Peter was just preaching his sermon 
at Pentecost, right? Remember the context of this? Um, he said, now when they heard this, they were cut to the heart. And they said to Peter and to the rest of the apostles, Brothers, what shall we do? And Peter said to them, Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, for the forgiveness of your sins. And you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. For the promises for you and for your children and for all who are far off, everyone who the Lord God calls to himself. And with many other words, he bore witness and continued to exhort them, saying, Save yourselves from this crooked generation. So those who received his word were baptized, and they were added that day about 3,000 souls. So Peter had just finished preaching a sermon, and verse 131 says that the people were cut to the heart. They were affected by this, and they wanted to know what they should do. His response to that question was that they should repent and be baptized, to identify themselves with Christ and with his covenant community. He said, save yourself from this crooked generation. And that doesn't mean remove yourself from the world. That means to no longer consider yourself identified with the world, but to consider yourself identified with Christ and with his church. Verse 41 says that those who received the word were baptized and added. Added to what? We're added to the church, right? So here again, we see it's clear. The goal is just not to make converts. Our, our, our goal in making disciples doesn't end when somebody accepts, believes, repents, and is baptized. They're added to the covenant community. And to be able to accommodate for that, church planting was a necessary part. And then he immediately goes on in verses 42 through 47. Or did I say that wrong? Um, Maybe it's 24 through 27. Um, he said, he, he gives us the essential ministries of the church. Do you remember you know, the essential ministries of our worship, fellowship, um, teaching, service, and evangelism? Again, evangelism is the proof, the, the fact that the church continued to uh, engage unbelievers is, is proof that they didn't just, cricket, being a cricket, uh, being from the cricket generation wasn't a mean of separating themselves out. But they continue to engage as a body. <clears throat> we see in passages like um, Acts 5 and uh, 1 Corinthians 5. Acts 5 is an account of Ananias and Sapphira. Uh, 1 Corinthians 5 is this account where this man is caught in an adulterous relationship. And in both situations, they face church discipline. And it shows that these believers were accountable to one another. They were committed and accountable to one another. And they, you know, they stood before God, but they also stood before the church. So again, there, there's a connectedness there. Um, Acts 6. Here we see uh, you know, the, the needs of the widows was becoming too great. The church couldn't handle it all. And so what did they do? They organized themselves, right? They appointed deacons to go and meet these needs of ministry. And this is important, too, because... Though they may not have had a formal membership as we think about it, we, we've seen that they continue to teach one another, they continue to have fellowship, they were committed to one another, they were accountable to one another, and now they were organizing themselves around one another so that they can be more effective in ministering to one another. This is clearly a church that they have in mind. 
Acts 8 uh, tells us the result of what happened after Stephen was stoned. It says that there was an uprise in persecution and the church began to scatter. Verse 1 says, And there arose in that day a great persecution against the church in Jerusalem, and they were all scattered throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria, except for the apostles. So the apostles stayed, but a lot of the other believers went out. They went out where? To Judea and Samaria. Again, fulfilling Acts 1.8. And then in verse 4 it says, and, and now those who were scattered went about preaching the word. They weren't just running away and hiding. Their purpose was to preach the word. So here God was using this persecution in their lives to scatter them out. But as they were going, they were still faithful to Jesus' commands. And these people, these common people, these common believers, these lay folks, I mean, they weren't the apostles, right? They weren't people who were, were you know, high authorities in the church. They went out and they were faithful to the Great Commission. And they started churches that they went. So much so that by Acts 9, by the time that, that Saul was converted and finds his way to Damascus, there are, there's a church in Damascus. Ananias of Damascus was there. And, you know... Uh, where was Damascus? Do you remember? Was it in Judea and Samaria? No, it was in Syria. So even here, in one chapter, we see that the gospel has gone out through Judea and Samaria, and now it's it's beginning to touch on that ends of the earth. It's spreading out even farther. Then in Acts 10, you have Peter preaching to Cornelius and the Gentiles, showing that there's no partiality, that that the gospel is not meant for just the Jews, but it's meant for all people. And so you see this multi-ethnic church arising, that there are people now of every tongue and tribe and nation that are coming to know Christ. Then you have Acts 11, um, 11, 19 through 30. Stand closer, I think. And what happens here, this is the account of the church in Antioch. And if we could have a biblical example of what we want Redeemer to be, I think it's Antioch. Because what had happened there was these these believers were scattered from Jerusalem by this persecution that happened in Acts 8. And they made their way up to Antioch, which is now, to you know, it's beyond Judea and Samaria. And they're up there and they plant this church. But not only do they plant this church, but they plant a church that will plant churches. I mean, this is this is a significant church. It was reaching the Gentiles. This church was it was comprised of elders who were Gentiles, you know. And this church is the first church where they were called Christians. This is significant. See, there you go. Um, this was significant because this was these were outsiders who were calling them Christians. The unbelieving world was looking at them, and they were calling them Christians. That transformation was evident to the world. So though it wasn't started by an apostle, the apostles and the elders, they they came later on and they affirmed, man, this is definitely a church. This church is rocking. I want to be a part of this. Um, And so that's the kind of church that I want to be. Um, and this church is significant because what happens in Acts 13? Do you remember? Send them out. Send them out. Who they send out? 
Yeah, Barnabas and, and Saul. They were the ones that appointed Barnabas and Saul for for their mission. They became a church planting center. Um, Paul would would make Antioch his command central for his mission, the op, his base of operations. As he went out, he would continually come back on his on his missionary journeys. And I want to talk briefly about Paul. I mean, Paul's mission was to plant churches. There's no doubt about it. Um, he realized, um, Paul realized that his mission was to plant churches, just not plant churches, but to plant them in urban areas. And I think that this is significant. He realized that if you focus on major cultural hubs, that you can make the most impact. Transformation in these culture centers would then trickle down to the more rural areas. I mean, if you think about it, an example of, of blowing up a building. If you want to blow up a building, you don't just take explosives and randomly scatter them throughout the building. I mean, if you do, it'll cause some damage. You know, you, you ignite it, it'll take off, it'll blow this up, it'll blow that up, whatever. But it won't knock the building down, will it? It's not all that effective. Furthermore, your goal is not to just get the most explosives you possibly can and just pile them up at the bottom and just try to blow it into outer space, right? You know, the building will fall the wrong way. It'll cause all sorts of disaster that it wasn't meant to call, you know, cause. It just, it can't really meet the need. It's not that effective. You know, it, it's more destructive than it is helpful. But if you take those explosives and you plant them at the major support structures, you can take, actually, a, a lesser load, a lesser explosive load, and do the most damage with it, and you can safely bring that entire building down. It's the same concept with church planting. If we truly want to transform culture, if we truly want to affect the world around us, we need to be particular in how we focus on that. You know, if we go to urban areas, if we go to college towns. You know, I mean, I, I, I think, you know, the, ur the urban areas and, and universities are the big culture shakers. And if we can go there and plant churches there and transform the city, transform the culture there, then we can have a great impact on the world around us. <clears throat> Paul also appointed elders in each of the churches that he established. Uh, in, in Titus 1.5, Paul charges Titus with the task of bringing order and leadership to the churches by appointing elders. And once he appointed these leaders, he considered his work done in that area. So he went, he planted these churches, but once he got the leadership in order, he said, okay, my work here is done, and he went to another area. An example of that is Acts 14.23. And when they appointed elders for them in every church, with prayer and fasting, they committed them to the Lord in whom they believed. And then the very next verse, they move on. Next town. <clears throat> so you see, Paul was not just about making converts. Paul was about planting churches. You know, you realize that, that 13 of our books, New Testament books, 13 of the books that we have is Paul's continual instructions to those churches that he's planted. He's gone back. He's continued to give them guidance. Um, he didn't write to individuals. I mean, Philemon was kind of written to an individual, but it was distributed to the church at large. He wanted the entire church to learn from what was happening there. His desire was to focus on churches, not just individuals. <clears throat> so Paul's you know, primary biblical example we have of church planting, and that was clearly fundamental to his mission, 
But he did, uh, and he did not consider his work in, in that area complete until a church or churches were truly established with leadership. But it wasn't just his mission. It was God's mission. I want us to look at Acts 13, 1-3. Now there was, and there were in the church at that, <clears throat> there were in the church at Antioch, prophets and teachers, Barnabas, Simeon, who's called Niger, Lucius of Cyrene, Ananian, a member of the court of Herod the Tetrarch, and Saul. While they were worshiping the Lord and fasting, the Holy Spirit said, Set apart for me, Barnabas and Saul, for the work to which I have called them. Then after fasting and praying, they laid their hands on them and sent them off. In verse 2, the Holy Spirit said to them, Set apart for me, Saul and Barnabas, for the work to which I have called them. Their work, their mission, their goal in church planting was not theirs, it was God's. It was what God was doing. It was God's mission. And guys, if church planting is God's mission, then it ought to be ours. It really ought to be ours. I'm often surprised the response that I get when I tell people that I'm a church planter. It's it's actually it, it's amusing and it's disappointing. Um, even though it's kind of currently a hip thing to do, like all the all the guys coming out of seminary talking about church planting, it seems like you know Mark Driscoll has kind of made this a really popular thing or whatever. But uh, nationwide, it's still basically unimaginable. Unimaginable. Some say to me, church planting? I've never heard of that. What is that? Uh, or others say, well, what do you do? What do you do to plant a church? You know, or, or or one of the best ones that I got was actually from a family member. She said, so you're going to build a building? <laughs> a church is not a building, folks. But my personal favorite is one I actually heard this weekend. You know, uh, one of my buddies, Ben, that I met at this basic training, he goes up to a guy, and the guy's like, oh, yeah, what do you do? He said, yeah, I'm a church planter. He's like, oh, you do landscaping for churches? <laughs> like, are you kidding me? But you know that's that's the way that's the way Christians. I mean, a lot of people are Christians who are saying this, and church planting is just not even on the radar, and and it floors me because I, you know, I just I often ask them. I'm like, well, how do you think your your church came to be? I mean, do you think that it dropped from heaven, complete with steeple and baptismal? You know, I mean, do you believe that that some group of people just came in to build a building and then suddenly there was a group of people meeting there? You know? Unfortunately, I think most people think this. The reason we have so many churches is because we have so many church splits. And that's sad. It's unfortunate. I mean, and part of it's true. And what does that say about the church? It doesn't say much. But the reality is, the church came to be where it is today. The church as we know it is here because of the efforts of so many faithful people who planted churches. This is why we have the church in America. This is why we have the church in England. This is why we have the church in Europe. This is why it leads all the way back to the Middle East, to that little speck of rock in Jerusalem. It's because people were faithful to plant churches, and they're doing it throughout the world. 
And it's not just because people are faithful, but because God called them to. He set them apart for His work. Ephesians 2.10 says this, For we are His workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. The church exists where it does today because God fulfilled His purpose in church planting through many faithful saints. And so we want to be faithful to God's mission of church planting. If we really want to be about His work, we've got to be about this. We really do. But lest we think that that, uh, God's work in church planting is done. Some people are thinking, well, you know, we have a church in America. Church is reaching the uttermost ends of the world. What's there left to do? I want to talk about the practical rationale for church planting. I want to start with some scary facts. Maybe this will wake you up. Uh, I, I don't have a lot of, of, of global statistics. I didn't have the resources with me while I was over there trying to finish this up, so I couldn't pull some things off. Uh, but it's So a lot of our statistics are going to be national, but we can, we can probably be assured of this. If things are bad in America, they're going to be far worse internationally. I mean, that's a safe assumption to make, right? So in the world, approximately 2 billion people have little or no access to the gospel. Little or no access to the gospel. But even this is not an accurate picture. We've got, we've got some friends who are serving in Turkey as missionaries. Do you realize that there are, you know, there's approximately one missionary for every 100, or 1 million people in Turkey? I mean, how's that going to work? I mean, it, it, it's, a, it's a dismal sight. Nationally, here are a lot of statistics for you. The United States still remains the fourth largest mission field in the world. In fact, it's so much so that a lot of other countries send missionaries here. It's amazing. I met a guy, Tony Nunez, today, or the other day, who's a missionary from Honduras who came up here to plant churches. It's a a definite need. It says roughly that, um, I got these statistics from, from Scott Thomas, who oversees Acts 29, church planting. Uh, he says that roughly 3,500 churches close their doors every year. 3,500. He said that 80% of churches are stagnant or declining. 75% of Christians are not consistent. They don't regularly attend. They're not, they're not really consistent with their faith, and they're certainly not sharing their faith. I, I heard a statistic that 90% of all people who profess to be Christians will never share their faith. Not once. And it it floored me. Um, 18% of Christians attended a Christian church in 2007. And this is down from 1990 where the percentage was uh, 20.4%. According to John Armstrong, um, who is in, in Presbyterian circles... He said that giving per person is actually less today than it was during the Great Depression. I can't believe that. The Great Depression. People didn't have homes. And the giving was still higher. And uh, another statistic. There are only enough church plants to keep up with one-eighth of the U.S. population growth. 
So not only can, at this point, church plants can't meet the needs, you know, can't reach all the unbelievers, but they can't even reach the, and, you know, seven-eighths of the unbelievers who are being born into the world. So, I mean, this is a huge statistic. Uh, on a state level, I heard this statistic um, this weekend as well, and quite honestly, I think that it's a bit too optimistic. It said in 40 years, 65% of all SBC churches in Illinois will be completely empty. Completely empty. I'm going to guess it's more like 20 years. And I wouldn't even be surprised if the percentage isn't higher than that. The reason why I say that is because on a national level, SBC you know, had, had said higher figures. When I was in Missouri back in, you know, from 2002 to 2005, the statistic was in 20 years, 80% of the churches would be dead. So, there's a lot of work to be done. And then, three quarters of Illinois is lost. So, that's, those are some figures for us. If we hope to see these statistics change, though, we need to be a part of the solution, and that's going to involve us being involved in church planting. I mean, we're going to have to step out rather than just, you know, becoming a, a holy huddle. <clears throat> In Tim Keller's article, Why Plant Churches, he provides a list of reasons, positive reasons, why we should pursue church planting. And I actually emailed this to all you guys, so you should have it in your... I just emailed it this morning, so you should have it in your inbox. Let me know if you didn't get it. Um, he said, first, new churches, best reach, new generations, new residents, and new people groups. Older churches, they tend to establish traditions, whether it be traditions regarding worship style or the way that everything looks, you know, the style of music, the way people dress, the types of ministries that they have, how long the services are, you know, you name it. And that usually doesn't take into consideration the younger generations. And so... Uh, and they, they do this, obviously, because it's the older generations that have the most influence in the church, either because they've served in leadership or you know, because they have the money. Uh, so that's just kind of a tendency. Um, in addition, it's hard for new residents to find areas of leadership uh, because the older generations have secured them. You know, an established church, a new, a, you know, a new family comes to town, and maybe they're really gifted in particular areas, but they can't serve in a way, you know, they can't utilize their gifts because, you know, Joe Bob has been in that position for 16 years and he's planning on doing that until he kicks the bucket, even though he's like 85 years old. You, know, you see what I'm saying? Is that uh, this allows, new churches allow for, for new leadership uh, to come in. And then new congregations can be structured to reach specific people groups. Thus, overcoming certain barriers like language or, social, uh, or culture, or socioeconomic uh, status, uh, geographic issues, or situational barriers. You know, it, it doesn't work if, if we're out there where we have a Hispanic neighbor and he barely speaks any English, but we invite him to church, you know, an established church should not be able to com accommodate that. But we can start a new church that that's, you know, speaks Spanish, and then that guy has a place to go. So the, those are some of the benefits to, to reaching uh, new people. Secondly, new churches best reach the unchurched. 
I mean, it doesn't matter what denomination. I, I mean, dozens of denominational studies have confirmed that the average new church gains most of its members, like 60 to 80% of its members, through evangelism, through reaching the unreached, through making converts. Um, whereas churches that are, are ages 10 to 15 years of age, um, they gain 80 to 90% of their new members by because of transfer from other congregations. So again, you know, if we want to grow, we need to be sharing the gospel, and that's the best way to grow, rather than getting in that place where we're just kind of shuffling the same folks around. <clears throat> but church planning is also good for the entire body. It's not, it's not as though this is just... That, those kind of things seem a little bit negative and, and kind of promote... Uh, just the new works, but it's also good for the entire body. It's good for old churches, too. Uh, first, new churches bring new ideas to the whole body. A church, an older church is kind of set in its tradition. It's kind of, it's, it's maintaining, it's just kind of moving along. And so if new ideas, new skills, new methods for reaching uh, the lost come about, they're a lot more reluctant to try to act upon those things, where a new church is much more flexible and will do that. And when the old church actually sees the effectiveness that the new church had in employing these tactics, they're a lot more willing to then finally do them. <clears throat> Fourth, new churches are one of the best ways to surface creative, strong leaders for the whole body. With, the new, with older con congregations, the leaders emphasize tradition, tenure, routine, kinship ties, those kinds of things. But in a new church, in new congregations, on the other hand, attract they attract actually a higher percentage of venturesome people who value creativity, risk, innovation, and future orientation. And so these leaders come in, they try new things, and they, you know, they, they build experience, and eventually they may go out and pastor or be leadership in some of these other older, older churches in the future. And so it's, it's good for the entire body. Fifth, new churches challenge other churches to self-examination. Sometimes we can get stuck in a rut and say, you know what, I don't think that can be done. And so we just develop that main maintenance mode. But a new church comes in, and they just go by faith. They, they go, and they work, they do, and they see results. Then these other churches look at, well, what's, what's the deal with this young church? Why are, why are they having so much success? Because they were faithful to do things. They, they didn't have to adopt this pessimistic attitude and allows for that church to then repent and humbly you know, do what, fulfill their mission, to reevaluate their mission and to act upon it. Six, a new uh, church may be an evangelistic feeder for a whole community. You realize that we actually may go out and be faithful to share the gospel and, and Lord might bless us with converts, and we, they might end up in other churches. You know, this example of cultural barrier might be a big thing. I mean, we've had, when we went out on um, last Wednesday, we had huge success with the Asians and with the African Americans. You know, people that are in very different socioeconomic, cultural, you know, stages of life. We're, they're more than welcome here. We'd love to have them here, but you know, some of these Asians may have a hard time understanding English. They may not be able to keep up with, with the words that we sing or what, what I'm saying up here. And so it may be better for us to, 
to find an Asian congregation for them to be a part of so that they can understand the language. You know, uh, somebody can make a move across town and they end up, you know, one block away from another church and they're like, why would I drive across town when I could just go here? You know, those kinds of things may happen. And that's fine. Our goal is, you know, to make disciples and to get them plugged into a place where they can grow and mature. You know, and as long as we're doing that faithfully, then may God have glory for that. And then lastly, planting new churches is an exercise in kingdom-mindedness. This is a gut check. It is so easy for us to become about building our church, to build up our walls, to build up our ministries. And so when new churches come in, and we have some leaders from other churches who want to come and be a part of this new work, because, because they have a missional mindset. They want to see people come to know Christ, and they think the best way that they can do that is to come to a new church. Well, that's kind of a depth check for older churches, isn't it? What am I about? Am I about my institutional turf, or am I really about advancing the kingdom? It's going to be the same way with us as we progress on, you know? Down the road, we send, you know, get ready to that point where we're, we're getting close to sending Caleb out, we may just be like, oh, we really like Caleb as a worship leader. We think he does such a great job. And gosh, what are we going to do? I mean, is God going to provide us somebody else? I don't know. Maybe maybe we should just tell Caleb to stay. Well, no. It's not what we're going to do. Because that we'd be falling prey to the same thing, losing our kingdom. <clears throat> so we've seen the biblical foundation, the practical rationale for church planting. And now... You know, let's just take a look at what that might look like for us at Redeemer. Like I said, you know, we desire to be a church that plants churches that plants churches. And our desire, again, is to see lives transformed, to see our cities transformed, to see our culture transformed. And, you know, you may be looking around and saying, there's like nobody here. How are you going to do that? This seems like a lofty goal. Why would, why would you be talking about that now? Why would you be talking about that when there's just a few families here? Well, the reality is, it's important to start now. Church planning has to be built into the DNA of the church if it's actually going to act upon it. If we're not going to have that mindset now, when are we going to develop it? At what point is it ever acceptable to then go ahead and, and take this off? Five years? Ten years? If we don't start now, we'll never start. I mean, that's just kind of the point. And that's why... We address it when we do. And, you know, I tell you this because I want you guys to have a vision of something that's even further down the road. You know? I don't want you to become comfortable. I don't want you to think, okay, now we've gone to our weekly worship service. we somehow arrived. Let's just become complacent. Let's become comfortable. Let's just kind of settle. I'm like, no, we're driving ahead. We've got a big thing that we're working towards. And I want you guys to see that. We're not setting time limits on it. We're not setting numeric value to it because that could be a discouragement. But we're saying this is out here. This is something that we're working towards. So I want to focus on our location. Why did we end up here? I may have said this to you guys individually. I don't know if I've said it to you to a whole. But one of the reasons why I wanted to come to Champaign was just because of the college, just because of the university. You realize that I mean, we're in, we're in one of those cultural hubs. Do you realize that Champaign-Urbana was the, one of the first pilot school, well, it's Urbana School District, was the pilot school district for taking prayer out of schools. 
You realize how that has changed culture? That's right here at our back door. And this is significant stuff. I mean, we're on the cutting edge here. I mean, it, it may not seem like it as we walk around day to day, but we really, really are. There's a real intellectual engagement here that I find appealing. So that if you if you teach somebody the gospel and really take a hold of it, then there's a longing, a hunger to know, to grow, to develop. And these people are the future leaders of America. So if you can get these leaders around the gospel, they fall in love with it, they begin to grow, and they can really become leaders that impact change. Secondly, they're transitional. Somebody, Some people see this as a problem. I see this as a good thing. Because they're going to go out. <laughs> We're automatically creating missionaries. If we can build into them the four to eight years or whatever while they're here, and then send them out, hopefully these things that we teach them will continue on. They're energetic. This is another big thing. I mean, college students are passionate about things, and, and we want to harness that. We want to use that. We want to see them get excited about God, to grow in their knowledge of the Lord, to as they go out, to be excited and energized and emphatic about sharing Christ with others. And another thing is they're mobile. You know, you single guys, single girls, you guys can pack up and move like that. Can't do that with my family, not as readily. But there's a lot of flexibility and mobility that comes with that. Another, uh, some more things in terms of location. We're centered right in the in the middle of three major urban areas: Chicago, St. Louis, and Indianapolis. And there is an, a natural conduit between Champaign and those areas. I mean, those areas, they take their, their students, typically a lot of them come from, from those areas. They come down here to go to school, and most students, once they leave, are going to find jobs, more than likely, in one of those three areas. So they're naturally going. So if they're coming here, we have them for four years, and they're going back, we can build church planting teams to send out with church planters to then effect change. And they're also close enough that we can create networks. It's not hard to get to St. Louis. It's not hard to get to Indianapolis. It's not hard to get to Chicago. So if we focus on those three areas, you know, it's it's easy to provide um, help when we need to. <clears throat> and so, and even if we're not in a place where we can send a team, you know, if we have a church plant up there, we've got somebody that's, you know, we got a church plant in Chicago, got a student that's just graduating, getting ready to go up there, you can automatically get them plugged in with that team to hopefully strengthen that church planning team that's up there. So we want to harness this transiency. We want to harness this energy. We, we want to harness the opportunities we have and use them to you know, impact change. Um, internship. It's our desire to start a church planting internship. Uh, an internship that focuses on church planting, campus ministry, and cross-cultural church planting. Those three areas. We don't know exactly what that's going to look like down the road, whether it's going to be one year, two years, where that piggybacks onto certain things. We're still trying to figure it out. But this is something that's significant. We want to give guys opportunity to, provide, to receive hands-on training, to be able to think with church planters about church planting, to be more effective at church planting when they go out and do that. You know, like I said, there's, uh, I don't know if I said this, but there are 24,000 internationals right here in Champaign, Urbana. 24,000. So we can have cross-cultural church planting just by going outside. 
we don't have to leave town. You go up to Chicago, there are huge ethnic pockets where you can you can do cross-cultural church planting without ever leaving your state. So there are a lot of a lot of opportunities. We're trying to work with our ties, the ties that I have with Southern, Southern Baptist Theological Seminary, to get guys who are near finishing their degrees to come up here. And hopefully we can get to a point where we can, they can receive some class credit or they can take classes at Urbana Theological Seminary to kind of finish out their time. And while they're doing that, they can serve here. They can be prepared here. And then we can send them out uh, when the time should arise. But what we want to do with those, we want to assess them. You know, we want to, we want to identify their gift, giftedness, um, how effective they would be at church planting, help them in, in areas that they may be weak. We want to give them field experience, opportunities for, for first-hand knowledge of, of what that looks like. We want to train and equip them on how to think about church planting, because it is really different than going into an existing church. You know, and then serving for a while, helping us to further our ministry areas, particularly like outreach and evangelism, community building, teaching, those kinds of things. We'd be able to do a lot more if we had a regular um, number of interns coming in and out through there. And then provide continual spiritual, practical, and financial support for them once they move on. So, you know, some of this is down the road, but really some of this is today. I mean, we've got Caleb here. <laughs> and I, you know we we're going to do everything we can to you know to help prepare him and to get him ready to go and um, it's our goal. Um, I mean we, we don't profess to know everything. I mean I, I still have a lot to learn about church planting, but I'm learning and I know one of the best ways to learn is to teach. And if I can teach what I'm learning, I'm helping that guy along the way so that he can be more effective than even I am. That's really my, my hope. I hope that that Caleb plants more churches than, than I do. You know, I I really hope that. So we'll we'll see what the Lord does with that. <clears throat> Our next plan, you know, right now we're tentatively thinking three to four years from now. If the Lord provides the growth, provides the finances, provides the readiness of the team, not just the planter, if we've done our homework on the target area and we feel like we're ready to go, you know. But again, we want and we want that church to be a planting church. <clears throat> so uh, eventually, we want to get to the point where the network of churches that we've planted, you know, the sort of redeemer network, if you will, it's our hope to eventually get them to where they're planting one new church a year. I don't know how long that's going to take, but that's kind of the goal: is at least one new church a year. Because I mean, you've seen the statistics, guys. I mean, if we're going to do something to affect that. We've got to be serious about planting. So, <clears throat> based upon that, we may need to rewrite our mission statement a little bit. Uh, make a couple adjustments. We may need to change it to this. Redeemer Church exists to build redemptive communities of gospel-centered people. Because, again, our desire is to plant churches, to plant churches, to plant churches. I mean, I know this was my heart, but I, I want it to be yours. I really want this to be your passion. Even if you leave here and you go somewhere else, I, I pray that God uses this to develop within you a heart for church planting. Because I really think it's the only way to truly effect change. So, here we are. This is the end of our core team development. You know, we, we've taught a lot 
We've trained a lot. We've gave a lot of instruction. We've tried to uh, rally you guys around our vision. We've tried to rally you guys around our, our mission. We've tried to gain focus, to gain purpose, so that we might be of the same mind. Uh, but really, it's up to all of us. I mean, I can't drive it. Caleb can't drive it. Jim can't drive it. The elders can't drive it. It has to be owned by all of us. Otherwise, it's just words on a page. So I would ask that you guys go back and reflect. Go to the website, reread these things. You know, you can listen to the audio again. Think deeply about these core values. Let them be, I pray that they're your core values. Uh, you think deeply about our vision, our mission, how we broke those down. I mean, I pretty much gave an expositional sermon on our vision and mission statement. And there's a lot there. So go back and listen to that. So let me close with the words of Paul from Philippians 2, 1 and 2. So if there's any encouragement in Christ, any comfort in love, any participation in the Spirit, any affection and sympathy, complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we, we praise you for the grace that we have received in Jesus Christ. And that with that grace, you have given us a privilege to make disciples of all nations. God, as we conclude our core team development, we pray that this might not be something that's just shuffled away um, in oblivion, but it is something that uh, continues to come forward in our hearts and in our minds, that it would truly direct our steps, that your vision that you have given this church might motivate us towards a joyful obedience and a desire to see that lived out, to see Christ exalted through this church and through the churches that it would plant. God, I pray that each one of us here examines our own heart and asks, God, what what should I do? How should I respond to this? What's my part to play in this? How do I make disciples? How do I how do I get involved with church planting? How do I, you know, assist in the fulfillment of this vision, this purpose? Because we are one body, and I am a member of that body. I have my function, I have my purpose, and I want desperately to follow in that. God, I pray that our minds and our hearts would truly be unified as we step forward together in faith. And may you be honored in our actions. May we remember that this is for your glory. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.